Welcome to the Influence and Impact Podcast for Female Leaders. My name's Carla Miller, and I'm a leadership coach who helps female leaders to tackle self-doubt, become brilliant at influencing, and make more impact at work. I've created this podcast to help you to become a more inspiring and impactful leader. And I want to become the leadership BFF you didn't know you were missing until now. I spend a lot of time coaching women around confidence, giving them the tools to build their confidence and shining a light on the role that gender bias plays in making us doubt ourselves at work. But confidence issues often start a long time before women enter the workplace and the pressure that girls face today due to social media is absolutely huge. In this episode, I interview Laura Serkham, the inspiring chief exec of GFS, Girls Friendly Society, a charity that works with girls to inspire and empower them to live their best lives. Now, this year, my business has been making a donation to fund a girl to attend one of GFS's confidence building sessions for every participant in our Open Be Bolder courses. So it was great to explore this topic with Laura. We talked about why there's a need for the work that GFS does. What is it that's causing girls as young as six to struggle with their confidence? We talk about the importance of positive role models and also of safe spaces where girls can be themselves. Now, GFS is an amazing charity. And when I think back to myself as a young girl, I think I had an absolutely crippling lack of confidence alongside being extremely shy. Um, And I think I was lucky that as I progressed in secondary school, I found the academic side of things came more easily to me and that built my confidence a bit. But before then, I think I would describe myself as completely lost in terms of confidence and knowing who I was. Um, And the idea of liking myself as opposed to comparing myself to all the people around me and thinking I should be more like them was completely alien to me. I'm really proud of how far I've come as a person. I'm sure that many of you listening can think of moments in the past, maybe moments when you were children, when you didn't feel confident. And hopefully you too can be proud of the journey that you've come on. And I think it's fantastic that there's resources like mine available to help women to overcome confidence issues. But wouldn't it be fantastic if we could help address these issues earlier on in children's lives. So I really love this interview with Laura. She's a really inspiring person. She shares about her own background um, and her own challenges with confidence and the difference that it made having someone believe in her. So please do check out their website and think about donating an hour of your pay to um, GFS to help make a difference to young girls in disadvantaged areas. I hope you enjoy the episode and do let me know what you think. So I'm delighted to welcome Laura to the podcast. Welcome, Laura. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm um, I've got a little bit of imposter syndrome going on here talking to you, but I'm good. 
<laughs> well, you're chief exec of a charity doing amazing stuff. So no imposter syndrome needed. We're going to find out all about it. So let's start there. Let's find out a little bit more about what is GFS? Um, um, how do you help girls? GFS is an amazing charity. It's been around now for almost 150 years. So we're approaching a big birthday. And our founder was an incredible woman called Mary Townsend. And she worked with a cohort of young women who were really isolated and considered vulnerable because of the lives they led. They were in service for the first time in big towns and cities and a really long way away from home. And since then, GFS has morphed and changed, but brilliantly responded to the need to support girls and young women where the need was most significant. So things like uh, women in wartime, uh, working women, you know, when women started working for the first time and how that worked for them, um, women who found themselves, girls and young women who found themselves pregnant and thrown out by their families as things, as, as, as the way things used to be. And now, obviously, times have changed and we as an organization have changed. And girls as young as six are telling us that they can't be themselves and um, they can't be proud of who they are. And that makes life really difficult for them, including things like making friends, has really serious implications for their lives and actually for society. So what we're doing is we're working with these girls who are isolated by that they're lonely um and we work in areas of deprivation um the place where places where girls um apparently have the toughest times and we are working to make sure that they become the women of the future that can really make society a stronger place fantastic and we're going to dive into that a little bit more but first i'd love to hear more about you how long have you worked there and what was your journey to get to this role um i have worked there for three and a half years it's been a really busy three and a half years because um it was new for me obviously but also during i joined just before covid launched so tough times um i come from a really um humble background my parents were very young adults um teenagers and we lived in my grandmother's social housing in North London until they got themselves in a position where they had their own social housing. And eventually they bought themselves their first house. And we moved out of London to um, Stevenage Newtown. And we lived in Stevenage Newtown um, where they were able to buy themselves um, their first home. I remember my dad saying to me as he put me up, that cost us five thousand pounds, and it is a is a noose around my neck. You know, <laughs> he found um, responsibility of owning a home really difficult. But my mum was so proud and so excited by the new life she could offer her three daughters. I'm the eldest of three, um, and because my parents were, they were so young, um, I was really encouraged to take responsibility and help out. Um, we had um, extended family living with us. It was a really busy house. And I was really, really shy and, and lacked in confidence so, so much. Um, and this does remain, you know, as I said earlier, I, I do suffer from imposter syndrome, despite the fact that having worked in the third sector for a very long time, having had some incredible jobs, including um, two CEO roles, 
um, I doubt myself and I and I question myself. Am I the person that can really do this? You know, and it it comes from a, a background where um, we were always a bit left out. I suppose life was always a, a bit difficult, and I didn't have strong role models in in my um, upbringing other than my aunt who used to come and visit and tell me I was magnificent and wonderful and could do anything I wanted. Um, and that that stays with me. In fact, I went to visit her last week and I said to her, you know, you had no idea the impact you had on me um, growing up. Um, and GFS really matters to me because um, I've had to work so hard on my confidence and my resilience um, to progress. Um, and I've had to have talks with myself about um, when I come to do something like this or when I give a presentation at a big um, fundraising event or when I've got a difficult meeting with the leadership team, you know, I have to have really strong talks with myself. Now, why are you doing this? You can do this. You know this stuff. You can. And and really kind of reinforce that for myself. Um, but I see the girls um, of today and the, the challenges they face and how difficult life is for them because of things like social media. And I I know that my life would have been full of self-doubt if social media had been a part of my upbringing. So um, seeing the impact that GFS makes in, in those girls' lives, um, thinking about how that would have had an impact for my daughter growing up and how I would have loved to be part of a GFS group um, because things like the brownies, they weren't an option for me. So. Um, I just want to make sure that we can do all we can to reach as many girls as possible. Thank you for sharing your story so honestly. And I'm sure lots of people do look at you and meet you and go, she's so confident and she's in this chief exec role, but you're also still human. And so many of us still have confidence issues. I teach this stuff and I still have to have a dance around my living room before I'm a guest on a podcast and over prep for it. Um, so I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Um, and don't we all need an aunt like that? I've tried to be that aunt for my niece who struggles a lot with confidence, actually. But it's really hard as a parent. Uh, I have a very unconfident and very, very shy five-year-old. And knowing how to build his confidence is a constant challenge for me. But let's talk about girls. And some of these issues that girls are experiencing in terms of confidence and self-esteem. So you mentioned that they can't be themselves. Why? What, what do you think is driving that? It's, it's fascinating because it's, um, it's not something that, that jumps out at you, is it? Um, we, we all talk about things like um, body attitude and um, lack of confidence, resilience. But this is quite a precise statement, and, and this is what girls have told us. So GFS is really driven by what the girls say um, in terms of what we do, what the program looks like, how we do it. Um, and so we very much listen to them when we've built our kind of impact measurement and our, our values and, 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 and our planning. And this, they've said that they can't be themselves, and that has... That has implications for their confidence, their self-esteem, resilience, things like making friends, because you've got to be confident to make friends. Um, but it comes from so, so many places for them. Things like um, family expectations, what, what their family expect of them, um, peer pressure, fitting in. Um, that's 
that's a big one right now. And social media is feeding that dramatically, isn't it? You know, we all know, we all know in our head that social media is not real. We all know that Instagram, those pictures have been posed. None of us post pictures where we look dreadful, do we? We always choose the nice one. The times that my daughter has snatched my phone from me and scrolled through to see which pictures I've taken and then delete all the things that she doesn't, just in case I post something. Um, for many of the girls that we work with, um, fitting in socially is really a, a challenge from them. And that comes from different things. But they are often girls that haven't been able to make friends elsewhere. And that might be because of... Um, learning difficulty, it might be because of disability, it might be because they're different to the girls in their class, it might be because they're going through um, gender questioning, they don't really know who they are and they're trying to work that out and there's nobody around them that can do that. And you mentioned how you're trying to be a, a really good role model for your, for your uh, niece. And I think that that's amazing because any parent will know that their own children don't listen to them. What we say as parents, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can say, oh, you're incredible. You're so clever. That's just genius idea. And they'll, they'll very often just give you a face and stomp off or, what are you talking about? Who, what do you know about this? Now, you say that to your niece or nephew, and the difference is, is, is tangible how they respond. Oh, really? Do you think so? And, and as a parent, you can see... When other people say to your children, just say that. Why wasn't why wasn't she listening to me? And so I, I think that that's a, a, a big thing. Um all this stuff that's going on around in the media around celebrities and uh, influencers, you know, um, where they are setting a bar that the girls find unobtainable and and then find it really difficult. They try and then they find it really difficult to know what to do for themselves and they very often disappear within themselves, really, trying trying to find themselves. Um, just recently, some of the team, the program team, have been out meeting girls and listening to what's challenging them right now. Um, and they've said um, that anxiety is a big thing for them right now. And, and that is, um, research is telling us that that is very much um, high on a priority list for us to think about because... It's one of the, the the kind of legacy pieces from COVID um, that anxiety is remaining um, and not going away soon. Um, they talked about um, attitudes of boys and how that makes life difficult for them, but also other girls as well. Um, that peer group pressure is enormous. And they're also worried about personal safety as well. You know, it's been in the press so much, hasn't it? Um, and that whole business of um, harassment and violence and discrimination, that's all hitting them. They, they know about it and, and, and it's worrying. So all of these things are contributing to how, how they're feeling and where they're, they're fitting in or not fitting in and, and the internal battles that they're fighting for themselves. It's a lot, isn't it? And they, yeah, they're dealing with boys who are growing up listening to Andrew Tate and the like as well, which is just horrifying. And what, what are the consequences of that that lack of confidence and self-esteem? What if that carries on throughout their life, if it doesn't have an intervention to support them, how 
does that impact their ability to achieve their potential? Um, enormously, enormously. Um, you know, I'll go back to my aunt. She did have, she, she was the linchpin for me in that I believed if I talked to myself, I could make progress and I could be okay. And I am okay, obviously. Um, and, um, and, and if, if she hadn't been there, things would have been, would, would have been different for me. Um, I think if they don't have that opportunity, then they're not able to tackle the challenges, the demons that they face. They will be isolated. They'll be severely lonely. Um, they won't be able to make friends and build their own tribe around them. And, um, and if they can't do that, then they don't have a source of, um, emotional nutrition for them to be able to um, build a strong life. And if we've got lots of girls feeling like that, and there are more girls than boys feeling like that, especially since COVID, and that means that we're going to have lots of young women feeling like that. And the corporate world is doing incredible things to open doors for women and drive kind of gender equity um, uh, as a sustainable development goal um, across all areas of um, business. But the problem is if girls don't believe in themselves as as girls, they're not going to believe in themselves as young women. There's going to be no magic that's going to happen. That's going to continue and get worse. And therefore, they're not, they're not going to apply for those opportunities, those big open wide doors. They're not going to go through them. There was some research, I don't know if you've seen it, where they had um, some research that talked about if a man sees a job description and he recognizes some of the words on those page, thinks he can apply for the job and he'll do a good job. And if a woman doesn't believe that she can do all of those things, then she can't. And so any girl, any young woman going into a job opportunity, a role opportunity, a development opportunity that sees a description and can't do those things, then they're not going to go there. So I think if we don't have people going through the women going through those doors, grabbing those opportunities, making them work, then society is going to continue to be unbalanced and we're going to have a really um, poor um, gender equity, which just feeds um, a kind of declining um, system and world for us, really. I completely agree. And I think, obviously, as you know, I work a lot with women on confidence. And I would say... I mean, obviously, I'm seeing a slightly biased intake as people are coming to me. But when I work with organizations where people haven't had a choice, so they're put in front of me, I would say 80 to 90% of women, particularly earlier on in their careers, are having substantial confidence challenges. And these are not women that grew up with the challenges that children are facing now. Um, so I think that problem is just going to get worse and worse and it gets exacerbated by the workplace because yes there's lots of initiatives happening but you're still going into meetings and being taken less seriously than your male colleagues you're being interrupted people are taking credit for your ideas you're being promoted more slowly um so in some ways work can be the place we get our confidence it was for me and I liked school I liked the rules and I'm like okay so that's what's expected of me 
And once I could do it, I was like, okay, this is good. Because outside of school, the rules of success were not clear other than they were meant to be pretty and blonde and confident. And I was none of those things. <laughs> I was like, I'll just stick to school. But work is, it should be easier to build your confidence because you're gaining skills all the time. But actually, it can be really challenging. I, I want to go back to the point you made about girls are experiencing this more than boys. You talked about numerous factors impacting girls' confidence. Which of those are the girls experiencing but not the boys? I don't think I can safely say which are impacting for girls but not for boys. I would imagine that boys are also struggling with the same, um, but at different levels. So if I take one example, social media, because social media is a thing that everyone goes to and feels comfortable, they understand it's, it's tangible. And when we, in, when we asked our volunteers um, on induction, if you think back to 1875 and you think back to now, 2023, lives were really difficult for girls and young women in 1875 when we started this organization, or our founder did rather. Um, so do you think that the world is better for girls and young women now in 2023 than 1875? And they go away and they have a big, meaningful debate about that. And it's a really good, it's a great pub question, actually, because it brings out all sorts of, no, 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 that's not true, because actually, you know, women have the vote now um, and bizarre things like that. Um but without fail, and we've been doing these every month now for the last three years, without fail, every single time they come back and they say life is worse. And when we ask them, which is quite shocking, isn't it? And I, I think because so much has happened. And when we ask them why that is, they point to social media. Say so social media is the thing that has made life so difficult for girls now. And they talk about all sorts of really dramatic um, stories that they know from the press or media or from their own personal lives. But to answer your question, really, social media is the thing that is clearly distinct for me in the research that was done around COVID and lockdown in particular. So during lockdown, um, girls um, and boys went to social media to make their connection because we were all at home. Um, you were... You were um, imprisoned with your family, whether you liked that or not. Um, and for some children, that was incredibly difficult. And there were things going on where parents lost their their way of uh, making a living. Um, obviously, domestic um, violence increased and, and life was a really difficult time. Um, and girls um, were, girls are social animals anyway, aren't they? And they found that even more difficult than boys and retreated into social media in a way of making connection with people and friends and conversation and also extracting them from the world that they were living in at the time. They did that more than boys did and the impact for them is that their, um, their mental health declined um, far more rapidly than it did for boys. So they are attracted into the world of social media far more than, than boys are. Boys obviously do it, but generally speaking, they go there and it's, it's the most toxic place for, for anyone to go, actually, isn't it? I mean, if you and me, you know, if we've, we've got any kind of insecurities, we, we don't want to be dabbling around in, 
in um, in social media at times of vulnerability, I don't think. No, I took Instagram off my phone. I mean, I only follow accounts that kind of make me feel good anyway, but I took Instagram off my phone for the Easter holidays and it's not gone back on. Oh, interesting. Why did you do that? Well, actually, and I love LinkedIn. I took it off so that I wasn't mindlessly reaching for the phone and so that I was spending more of my attention on my son whilst he was off school. Um, and also because I'd noticed just how addictive it is. And yeah, I've got no desire to have it back. I mean, I feel a bit bad for work because <laughs> we've not really been posting on there. Um, but it's like, you know what, my mental health is important. And even LinkedIn, I just do it on the computer now. And sometimes I check it on my phone, but it's so hard to do it because I haven't got the app on there that I'm not picking up and looking for that information all the time. But I really, um, what's the word? Um, well, the word's totally gone from my head. Um, curate, that's it. I really curate my feed anyway, so that it's not unhelpful. But I imagine with boys, a lot of the stuff that they're watching is like, I don't know, football or funny stuff whilst girls so much of it is about trying to improve yourself in some way um like beauty and fitness and all of that side of things it feels like the expectations have always been much higher on girls in that way and then that must get really really amplified by social media and presumably quite a lot of bullying can take place via social media I mean, bullying um, used to be um, visible, didn't it? It used to be a thing um, that you could see, um, e even the, the sort of bullying where you weren't invited to stuff, you knew about it and your parents knew about it. And now online bullying, cyberbullying is is incredibly powerful and, and, and girls are hiding that. Because they're ashamed, they're ashamed that they're not being included, they're not being invited to stuff, and and then that obviously gets even worse as well. And and the increase around um, poor mental health, anxiety, um, and then what that leads to in terms of self harm and um, really um, serious concerns. Um, there was um, an incredibly powerful film on in on um linkedin um this week um called almost 13 um and it was um a film about um uh, suicide where um where children um who were uh, almost 13 uh, took their own lives um and the parents were talking about this being the second highest killer um in uh, the states. It's an American film, um, and and the lack of investment in that work um, compared to um, corporate world, or um, they, they they talked about the airline industry as an example. And you know we're, we're facing the same here that it's it's an absolute killer poor mental health if we if we don't get that that support in place um, for vulnerable children um, when they really need it most. Absolutely. It is horrible, right? When you spend any time on LinkedIn, there's a sad, I've got lots of people in my feed and there's a heartbreaking story every day. I could, I could happily, not happily, but I could spend lots of time crying on LinkedIn. I've seen that post and I've, I saved it because I couldn't face watching it at the time it came up on my feed. But I was like, this is one of the things I need to watch, but um, no part of me wants to. It is heartbreaking. And so going back to you know, positive interventions, how do the GFS groups work? What do the girls do in these groups that helps them build their confidence? 
Um, so the way we operate is we have girls um, attend our groups in areas where it's the worst place to live if you're a girl. Um, and we, it's um, a safe place for them to come. Um, and in, interestingly, that's something that they say, this is a safe place for me. So culturally, whatever we're offering there, whatever goes on there is within walls that have been cushioned and made comfortable by the volunteers that, that run those groups. Um, they're places where we say girls can be themselves, feel accepted, and essentially develop skills that they need to be able to grow into young, confident young women. Um, so it's first of all about the culture and how that's set. And one of our team went to visit one of the groups um, in the Northwest. She went to Leighton, um, which is a really long established um, group run by magnificent woman called Barbara, who's been volunteering for GFS for over 80 years. Um, she's just a, an amazing woman, um, a real pillar of um, society, I think. Um, and um, they asked, what are the rules here at GFS? And and the girls all kind of looked around and said, well, I don't know really, um, probably um, be kind. Yeah, be kind, just be kind. And And these are Young girls that um, are from the ages of five um, and then they go up to older group as well, so kind of um, late teens. Um, and what they're focusing on is making sure that every new girl feels included. And and you you would think that that's an easy thing to, to do, but we know when we started a new group, when um, this was not something that girls naturally understood. We had to teach them how you can be inclusive and kind and welcome new people and mutually support each other. You don't have to fight for your own corner here. We're all one one group. So culturally, that is the first thing that we need to get right in the group. And then we have um, we have a program. So the program um, is built around key areas of development. We take one per term and then we build um, sessions for the volunteers to deliver with the girls every other week and then around things like um, speaking up um, you know that's something that that um, is really difficult if you don't believe in yourself and you don't have confidence in your own thoughts um, and your right to speak and it is absolutely crucial Going back to you know the fact that girls say they're worried about violence in the world and and what that impacts on them, harassment, and how they do that. If they can't speak up around what's happening to them, then they're they're at risk. So that was a really important um, term. They're all important. Um, and then we we've done another one around resilience and what that means for girls and young women. And and slowly, kind of week by week, that builds into a kind of understanding um, for the girls. But through that, really, they also able to develop friendships. So they've got a peer group and a, a tribe that they belong to, place they feel safe, um, and ostensibly building skills that will take them into young adulthood as strong, independent women who who believe in themselves. Amazing. And do they keep coming back to the group year after year? Yes, they do. Um and sometimes they move on um, because um, 
we've done our job. That's the dream, isn't it? Um, sometimes um, we find ourselves needing to open a group for older girls. So in Town Hill in South Wales, we have, we opened a group um, last year for younger girls, um, which is our sort of sweet spot, really, you know, this around prevention, um, getting there before girls lose their confidence, which is so young, just five and six, they're starting to lose their confidence. So um, we'd opened this group and then we found actually that girls were, um, older girls were kind of aging out, but they weren't ready to leave, you know, <laughs> they'd only been with us for a year. And so we opened another group for the older girls as well. Um, so yes, they do. And um, Leighton, the group that I described earlier up near Blackpool, um, they've been coming such a long time. They've seen through generations of girls and young women. So you see the girls starting at five, going on to the older group, then becoming young volunteers and helping out. And, you know, that responsibility and sense of um, ownership for their group as well um, and then um, you see them coming back with their children and Barbara's seen it all she's seen all of these women come back with their own children and start all over again when I first went to visit Leighton I said um, you've got an incredible team here she said and she pointed at her two young volunteers she said my Sorry, my young leaders. My my two young leaders have been with me a long time. They're they're doing great great work. These young leaders. And I said, "How old are your young leaders, Barbara?" Fifty. She said, "They're fifty, my young leaders." <laughs> She'd done it for eighty years. How old is this woman? How is that possible? She's mid eighties. She she's she came when she was little. Um, she's mid to late eighties now. Amazing. Uh, so it sounds like, yeah, obviously any girl would benefit from this. Um, and you're obviously focused on the girls that need you most in the areas that need you most. What's how many girls are you working with, and what's your your vision for the future? Uh, we're working um, with um, 500 girls right now. Our vision is that we grow that significantly. Um, we. Um, over the last year, we have revised our, our strategy um, to make sure that we're not just opening groups in um, a kind of chaotic way where somebody puts their hand up and says, I can run a group. We're, we're opening them in line with where research says we're needed most. We're opening um, cluster groups like the Town Hill one where there's an evidence of need um, around that. We have to make sure that we invest our resources so carefully in, in what we do growth-wise. This next year, we're um, we're about three quarters of the way through building our plan for next year, which is when we want to see an incremental increase in the girls we reach. Because whilst this last year we have lost two years, we have um, built an awful lot of thinking and planning around how we run our serve. Well, first of all, is it needed? D d is what we do at GFS still needed? Um, how how we deliver that, um, how we grow to respond to the need and where the need is, but also our program, how we measure that impact and how we report on our impact as well um, is, is really critical, not just for those who support us, although that's important, but also back to the girls themselves as well. You know, are we listening to those girls? Are we, are we, are we delivering a program that meets their needs? Um, and 
And so we're now in a place where we say, okay, we know all of that stuff. We know our DNA. We know our USP. We know we know why we exist and what we're doing, and we've validated all of that. Now it's time to press green and 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 let's go. Let's go some with some speed into twenty three, twenty four. Excellent. Um, and if there are people listening who want to support or get involved in some way, what's important for them to know? Oh, please, please contact us. Um, our supporter base is not huge. We have not been doing fundraising for very long, and it's critical for our, the future um, of GFS. Um, so I would say call us, email us, follow our social media channels, get involved in the conversation that's going on there. But in terms of something you can do on Monday morning, which is always a, a good kind of way of measuring whether or not a podcast has given you something to do and a call to action is that we've been thinking about bank holidays and how so many people we meet say um, it's great you're a national organization and you're all over England and Wales that's fantastic I want to volunteer and then you know we talk about how big England and Wales is and that we we are not in the town in which they live but they still want to volunteer in 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 terms of supporting the organization and the movement that we've created at GFS. So we've come up with this ingenious idea where in the month of May and afterwards if they want to, um, they can volunteer an hour of their time and they can volunteer an hour of their time by donating what they would be paid for um, for that hour and help us raise money to make sure that we can deliver some um, really brilliant training for the volunteers who are the lifeblood of GFS and make sure that they are at the top of their game in terms of responding to what the girls are really struggling with. Brilliant. So if they want to do that, will they be able to go to your website to do that? Well, and I can send you a link that you can add to the podcast as well. Fantastic. Um, well, I think that one last thing I want to say is I suspect there might be some people listening to this thinking when I grow up or they might be the same age, you're still thinking, I want to be Laura. I want to be a chief exec running an amazing, inspiring charity that makes a difference. Any advice on, um, on that, on believing in yourself enough to step up to a chief exec role or to go for the job of your dreams. You say you talked to yourself. What did you say to yourself when you first went into your first chief exec role to help you believe that you could do it? I was in a different place then. I think the first thing to say, I'll come back to your question, exact question then, but just the first thing to say would be do what you like and what you enjoy and respond to that. Don't worry about getting the best job, having the best careers, sorting out your options now because you think you know what you want to do when you're 21, 22, um, and just do subjects at school and at college that you really enjoy. My, I didn't start in this sector. I loved, even though I was shy, or maybe because I was shy, I loved acting as a child. So I worked, I, I operated in youth theatres and ended up going to drama school um, to, be an, to be an actor. And I spent my first year of working life as an actor which I grew to hate because too many people said no. Um, I, I had a great line in Baby Bear in pantomime um, and also um, 
Aladdin um, and and um, then some kind of traveling rep theatres. But actually, um, I worked out that that's not something I wanted to do professionally. What I really wanted to do was something that somebody told me I couldn't do. I loved flying, traveling, and I wanted to be a stewardess, cabin crew. So um, when I worked out I couldn't be an actor because of the life challenges it threw around, um, you and the lack of the constant re- reject, rejection and lack of kind of inclusion and acceptance. Um, I thought, well, I would do what's that person. So I couldn't do it. I'm going to apply. And I got the job. And I got a job. And I had five years where actually I started to really feel comfortable with my own skin doing what I loved doing, which was flying, traveling, meeting people, making people feel comfortable when they were really worried because. Traveling on an aircraft is a really scary thing to do for lots of people. And then I came out of that and I just happened to, um, had um, uh, a child and I happened to start teaching um, uh, children who were struggling at, at school and just um, then took up some training, ended up working for a charity that supports um, dyslexic children and adults. And then I got promoted and for a long time, and this is where the imposter syndrome um, comes up. For a long time, I thought I was promoted because I was the only person that had a jacket and that everybody else didn't look professional, but I could look professional and therefore I was promoted. It was nonsense, you know. Somebody saw in me um, something that they thought I could do and I did it. And then every opportunity that has come up since then has been something that, I have seen, but generally has come to me because I've been in a place where I've been happy and I've been enjoying the work I've been doing, even when it's been difficult. When I started, my first CEO CEO role was what you asked at the end. I had left a charity where it was male-dominated and it was um, headed up by somebody that led by intimidation and I always felt I had to fit in and be one of the boys. I took up smoking because they all smoked outside and I felt I had to start smoking just to fit in with them. So how ridiculous is that, you know, a grown woman doing that? Anyway, I left that role and I took up this first CEO role, which I saw um, because somebody emailed me about it. And I went into that job and I said, I am never, ever going to pretend to be somebody else. I'm going to be myself. And, you know, the whole of Laura is not ideal at all. Many people will tell you, um, my husband, my children, my colleagues. (laughs) Um, But um, being yourself and making a decision to be your true, very trendy word, authentic self is so liberating and that made me relax and just focus on what was needed and and the work that we needed to do instead of what did I look like what did I sound like you know um and 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 trying fitting in yeah I love that and it totally resonates with with me as well in terms of just the whole of color (laughs) it's quite messy sometimes but it does take away some of the imposter feelings because I'm not trying to be someone else or comparing myself to someone else if I stay off social media. <laughs> so we'll see how long I stay off. 
Well, thank you so much. It's been brilliant to hear more about the work of the charity, to hear about the girls that you want to support. I really hope it will encourage some more people to get involved, to get involved in your scheme to volunteer, donate an hour of their time. Um, and I look forward to continuing to support your work as well. So thanks very much, Dora. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for your support for GFS too. It means a great deal. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're not already subscribing, please do so so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you want to go deeper on the topics that we talk about here on the podcast, on confidence, self-doubt, imposter feelings, increasing your influence, being better at leading, then there are a few avenues that you can take. The simplest is to get yourself a copy of my book, Closing the Influence Gap. If you love this podcast, it is crazy if you don't already own that book because it's got so much of the content from the podcast in a really accessible way and so many practical tools and strategies. It's basically a practical guide for women leaders who want to be heard in the workplace. You can grab a copy in any uh, bookstore. Now, we also run a couple of open programs. Uh, we run them once or twice a year each. There is Be Bolder, our four-week confidence and assertiveness course, which is suitable for women at any level. And then there's also Influence and Impact, which is our women's leadership development program. That's a three-month small group cohort working closely with me. And then my team and I also work in-house in organisations. Sometimes that's working with women leaders, whether that's running a whole women's leadership programme or running one of our really popular masterclasses for women leaders. Sometimes it's working with early to mid-career women, where we're often sharing our Be Bolder confidence and assertiveness programme. We also offer gender neutral versions of that, which are becoming increasingly popular because women aren't the only people experiencing confidence challenges. And then finally, we do work with allyship and supporting men to help bring about gender equity in the workplace as well. So if you are heading up a team or a department or within your organization, you're responsible for the people function or L&D and would like to have a chat about how we can work together, I would absolutely love that. And you can go to my website and book a call or if it's simpler, head on over to LinkedIn. Let's connect and let's chat there. I would love to take working with you to the next level um, and help you to become an organization that retains and develops and supports the talented women that work for you.